0: I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Jeremy Bowman. Jeremy Bowman is the Executive Director of Defy Ventures Nebraska, an entrepreneurship, character development, and job training program serving people with criminal histories, currently in prison, and also post-release. Originally from Queens, New York, Jeremy moved to Omaha 10 years ago. He earned a journalism degree from Susquehanna University in Pennsylvania and a Master of Science in Leadership from Creighton University in Omaha. Having worked in non-profit organizations and higher education institutions for the past 17 years, he started his role with Defy Ventures in January 2017. Prior to joining the non-profit sector, Jeremy was co-founder and vice president of New York Telecom in Manhattan. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Great to be here. So I wanted to begin... In fact, by playing a clip from Malcolm X's speech "Message to the Grassroots," which I think will prompt some of our conversation, so here's that clip.
1: When I was in prison, I read an article, and don't be shocked when I say I was in prison. You still in prison? <laughs> That's what America means, prison.
0: So I wanted to play that because it's mm. it's. Dated in terms of the time that has passed, but um, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We'll be using that clip, as it were, to I think inform some of our conversation, but. In that context, could you give me some indication of what Defy Ventures is?
1: When he says America means prison, to me that speaks to the 2.4 million people who are currently incarcerated in our country right now, uh, where we live in a country that is uh, 5% uh, 5 of the population of the world, but 25% of the people who are incarcerated in the world. Um, So Defy Ventures is a program that we do for people with criminal histories, We transform the hustle of people with criminal histories by coming alongside them and teaching character development, job skills, as well as entrepreneurship. Um, We use entrepreneurship as a carrot to get folks involved in the program, Um, but we're really about is life, full holistic life transformation. We work with a population that has um, made made mistakes and um, are known for the worst thing they've ever done. And we come alongside them. We shine them back up. We give them some tools and we put them back in the fight. Speak a little bit more, if you would, about this idea of the disparities to be
0: found in the judicial system, uh, in the correctional facility system. And perhaps uh, from there, we can then talk about some of the successes of Defy Ventures.
1: So um, we have... Uh, as a democracy, many laws that have uh, come into play over over the last several generations that have uh, found us incarcerating a lot of people who are living in poverty, um, people in economically disadvantaged situations. Uh, we have, you know, created a situation where we're, we're we're locking up people who have substance abuse issues, who have mental health issues, where rehabilitation and treatment um, and counseling are really the answers to our approach to some of these problems, um, but unfortunately it um, You know, Nebraska's largest mental health provider is our criminal justice system, is the state correction system, and so we have uh, just have a terrible um, track record as a country of um, mass incarceration, of getting people stuck in a system, and um, once once you're trapped in that system, it's really difficult to uh, to break out of it.
0: What would the experience look like for someone who is currently serving a sentence, but taking part in this program, and then stepping outside, having served their, having served their prison sentence, and they step back out into the community, and the program continues. What is that experience for that person?
1: So right now we have a a prison system in Nebraska that is at 170% of capacity and a prison system that is way understaffed. Um, So an example would be one of the facilities we serve is the Tecumseh State Correctional Institution, Um, way overcrowded, way understaffed. Their corrections officers are working 16-hour shifts. And there's been a lot of violence in that particular facility, and the response to that is to lock the facility down, to um, lessen the movement around the facility, uh, to take programming away, to take opportunity away, and a lot of times that also takes hope away. It takes rehabilitation away, where we're focusing much more on punishment and less on rehabilitation. And so our program is a pretty rigorous program, but it's six months. The program is called the CEO of Your New Life, and we are currently serving Tecumseh, but also the Nebraska State Penitentiary and the Omaha Correctional Center. The program uh, is blended learning. There's 100 DVDs the participants watch. They work through a workbook. They work through peer group. And we're preparing them for reentry. They're working on things like personal statements, how they talk about their incarceration um, in job interviews every time they try to get a loan. Um, we work on resumes, but we also work on business ideation. And so we found that a lot of people who are incarcerated have incredible hustle, um, based on their home life and the challenges they face in their community. They've had to hustle from a young age and that often looks like, um, activity with gangs or drugs, um, and a skill set that they've been told their whole life is a negative. We see that skill set and we see an untapped potential. We see that as a positive. So we want to transform that hustle and take that skill set and give folks the tools to be successful uh, within legal business context once they're released. So our program really teaches hope. It begins to have folks uh, well prepared for once they're out, the types of positions that they feel more confidence to apply for and when it's really hard to get a job we want people to have the opportunity to incorporate um, incorporate businesses that can be profitable within three months of incorporation and we have we have that skill set um, in, in our correctional facilities just you know desperate for the opportunity to do that.
0: What would be the expression? Inmates, uh, participants, how do you?
1: We call them entrepreneurs in training or EITs. Okay. Um, we we try not to define people um, with these labels that society uses, like ex-cons. I mean, we're all ex-something, and so we use the term entrepreneur in training for our participants or people with criminal histories.
0: So why would entrepreneurs
1: in training
0: decide that because this is voluntary why would they decide that they want to participate in this program
1: there's a lot of people ready for change they have families that they need to provide for once released 89 percent of the people who reoffend and go back to prison don't have a job at the time that they reoffend a job is a huge challenge when you are released and that is where defy comes in and provides um Practical training, but also a network. We bring volunteers in to do coaching and mentoring, and that does a couple things. It helps prepare the EITs um, in terms of their preparation around their business plans and honing their business pitches for our pitch competition that we do. Uh, but it, we've had 150 unique volunteers come in uh, to volunteer, and that's 150 people that have now went to prison in, the, in Nebraska that have their own perception in their own, um, Views of what that is, and not just what they thought it was. It's personal now. They've got to know. They've got to know the individuals, and oftentimes walk out saying, "There's a lot of talent there. There's some good people there. I would hire um, some of these folks when they're released." And so that changes the hearts and minds because the rubber, rubber really meets the road for us when we have our folks beginning to come out into the community, and we need to have jobs ready for them, and employers ready to step up and say, "I'll take a risk." on somebody with a criminal history. And the calculator risk is they've taken this six-month program um, where they've done some life transformation and they've done some inside work because we do a lot around character development. So there, there's an endless amount of uh, people who are interested in our program and just starved for opportunities to grow and to learn. And that's just counter to uh, historically what the Nebraska prison system has to offer them.
0: I know that Five Ventures Nebraska is relatively new, but it's part of a much larger entity. So perhaps you could just clarify, as it were, the the umbrella organization and Five Ventures Nebraska's role within it. And then maybe speak to some of the before we get to more human stories, some of the the, the data behind the successes.
1: So Defy Ventures was launched in New York City in 2010. Our founder, Catherine Hoke, had a previous organization for five years in Houston working in, in a Texas state prisons called the Prison Entrepreneurship Program. That program also focused on entrepreneurship and business readiness, uh, but she wanted to create something that was scalable on a national level and have curriculum that you could drop into different systems in different states. And so in 2010, she launched Defy in New York. and began working in facilities in New York as well as post-release. In 2013, Google got behind the program and we were able to launch in the Bay Area. Uh, Today we serve 16 prisons in California and predominantly around um, LA as well as the Bay Area. And Nebraska was the third state to have the program. So we launched here in 2016, so uh, September of 2016. So we've been around for a year. Um, I came on board in January of 2017 as the Nebraska Executive Director, and we are um, launching in Colorado and Connecticut before the end of this calendar year. So we have some aggressive national growth plans where we'd love to be in 15 additional states over the next five years, so about three states a year. Uh, We have a 95% employment rate of our graduates. We have incorporated... 170 businesses from our graduates and those businesses have hired another 350 people predominantly coming out of incarceration and our recidivism rate is 3.2% of our graduates. Um, The national average, there's 60, 76% of folks reoffend and are reincarcerated within five years of release. So we what really drew me to Defy was the practical nature of the curriculum and the, the outcomes and this, uh, you know, breaking, um, defying odds <laughs> that uh, this is a population that can't be helped. Well, we, believe, we truly believe it can.
0: I really just want to ask you to repeat that data point about reoffending.
1: of people reoffend and are reincarcerated after release. Um, So if you've gotten out of prison, you have a 76% chance that you will do something, be rearrested and go back within five years. And we're sitting below 5%. Now, we're a young organization. We're around for seven years. Um, but our early returns are that what we're doing is working. And as we scale, if we're even at 10 or 15% recidivism, I think we're well ahead of um, the national averages in this area. I think
0: that's just not a sign of success. It is an astonishing turnaround.
1: The reality is 96% of the people in prison today are getting out. They're getting out at some point. They're moving into our communities. or are moving in next door to you. And as a society, I think we have some responsibility to give them some tools and some rehabilitation so that they can be successful once they reenter. It's good for everyone. Uh, when you have 70% of kids following their parents' footsteps that have been uh, incarcerated and that becomes kind of your birthright, um, one way to one way to break that is is work is jobs is keeping a parent home and not having to find a legal means to to provide for the family um, so we, we think it's uh, work worth doing for society at large and you know if you come at it from a social justice perspective that it, you know it's just wrong that we're warehousing human beings to the extent that we are or if the other side you say it costs $36,000 a year to incarcerate one person for one year in Nebraska that's incredibly a huge burden on taxpayers when the average sentence is 5 years and then in Nebraska we have close to a 40% recidivism rate so i think i think it just makes a lot of sense in all kinds of ways that we are preparing people to re-enter society.
0: You know, it's interesting. Then, folding back in Malcolm X's speech message to the grassroots, that excerpt that we just heard earlier, when he says America is a prison, it seems as if in the five decades since their speech, that that has been true. But Defy Ventures is uh, excused upon defying that mm-hmm. and perhaps making the kind of change that is necessary to preempt and undercut and and stop the uh, prison pipeline that we see typically associated with African-American neighborhoods.
1: Absolutely. I mean, when he talks about America is a prison, it's not just the 2.4 million people incarcerated, but 70 million people that have some criminal history uh, or arrest on their record. Um, we we have invisible handcuffs on people walking around our country every day that follow them to every job interview that excludes them from access to government housing or food stamps Basic needs that any anybody that's living uh, under the poverty line would need to access, we've taken these things away from people um, with that have criminal histories, and we've we've uh, created a stigma and a label around people with criminal histories where employment becomes almost impossible in some cases there's some 800 different fields where you're automatically eliminated from even applying if you have a felony on your record and so it's uh, disproportionately affects you know black neighborhoods in our country and that is no different here in nebraska where there's a disproportionate number of people incarcerated who are coming from north omaha
0: many of these participants are leaving and not just looking for employment but are also actually starting their own business is is that accurate
1: that is accurate so the ceo of your new life program we offer in prisons and we also offer it post-release to people with criminal histories And then beyond that, the people that do indeed want to start businesses, we have an incubator post-release that has up to 15 months of training. Um, We provide our EITs with Chromebooks and smartphones from Google, who's a great supporter of DeFi, so they can do the curriculum online. Uh, Those classes meet twice a month in person. And they're paired with mentors from the business community that kind of similar to teammates mentoring commit an hour a week for a three month uh, period to do mentoring for that startup business. And then every three months in the incubator, we have pitch competitions like we do in the prison. So we, um, we do a Shark Tank-style pitch competition uh, after the six-month program in the facilities where the top five winners receive an IOU of funding towards their business idea once released. So the winner receives a $500 IOU, second place 400 and so on. In the incubator uh, after and these are all belts like karate belts so they do intro and white belt in the facility and then our incubator starts in blue belt and at the end of blue belt there's a pitch competition where you can access five thousand dollars towards your business and then purple belt you're scaling your business and you can access ten thousand and brown belt when you're profitable you can access up to fifteen thousand dollars towards your business
0: How does the program go about shifting the narrative, changing the nature of self-esteem, either with these entrepreneurs in training, in the facility or post-release, and perhaps some of the attitudes that people associate with those that uh, have a criminal history?
1: Our, our participants in the prison, our EITs, have a hard time trusting programs, trusting individuals coming in. They've seen a lot of programs are often very skeptical and once they see how much we care and that we have their best interests at heart, that we're bringing in droves of volunteers to provide radical grace, to provide extreme empathy, to provide practical advice around their business ideas and resumes, you, you begin to form this trust and we are often the first call once they are released when you see our participants come to the kickoff um, from that day to the end of the six months, it's almost like a before and after picture. You, know, you see them standing up straight. You see the confidence and hope that they've developed over that time. Um, many participants say, I, I stopped thinking about my future. I did not think I had a future. I stopped hoping at all. And Defy has given me a hope, and and some skills where I can be the CEO of my new life and whatever that means, be it um, the the type of job that I want or starting a small business that I've always wanted to do. Um, And so we see just uh, kind of an inside-out transformation. For the people that come in and volunteer, we do some exercises that um, really highlight basically where We're very similar. We're broken people on both sides of this room. We have both made big mistakes. I am not defined by the biggest mistake I've ever made, like people who are incarcerated. Um, And we've all done things where we could potentially be on that other side. Um, And so we we show how similar we are, but we also highlight privilege and how different we are and the shared experience of many of our participants in terms of trauma that they've experienced at young ages, um, abandonment, abuse, violence, extreme violence in the immediate family. And a lot of the volunteers, for the most part, that we have brought in have not had that same shared experience. And they begin to see that we're not trying to help our EITs with a second chance, it's really in most cases just a legitimate first chance. They've never had a chance, mm-hmm. and so that is a profound change of thinking for volunteers when they leave, where they see their privilege, they see just the challenges that um, some of some of the people in our society have had to wrestle with from young ages that they did not. If your, do- if your dad is going to be a doctor, you think, hey, maybe I'll be a doctor. <laughs> and we're working with a population that predominantly there's violence or there's incarceration, and um, we're expecting a different outcome for the people who are growing up behind them. And so that, I think, creates more empathy and kind of more willingness to, to provide that chance, to provide that job, to mentor and help that business. Um, these are America's biggest underdogs, and we're grateful for the volunteers that that have a heart for our men and women, and are willing to, you know, to take that calculated risk in hiring, and to come alongside them and give them hope, but also some really strong mentoring.
0: We are planning to do a show where our guests will be graduates from the Defy Ventures program, so that is something that I'm looking forward to. But until then, in the meantime, are you able to share some stories maybe that illustrate and illuminate some of the things you've been talking about, maybe some of these stories from entrepreneurs in training?
1: Sure. A lot of the businesses that we've incorporated um, and helped folks start are simple businesses where there still is a need in the marketplace. So Our concept is we want you to be able to start a company that will be profitable within three months of incorporation for $20,000 or less. So we want very realistic um, business concepts. And so out of those 170 businesses, we have people with cleaning businesses, tailors, um, car detailing, painting, lawn care, arborists. Uh, We have some outliers, some unique companies. Uh, We had a guy in New York who was a drug dealer in the Bronx. And so he was making $2 million a year, got caught. He was 70 pounds overweight when he went into prison. And he taught himself a way to work out in his cell without any weights. And the weight just dropped off him and he collectively helped People lose a thousand pounds of weight on the yard, and he entered our incubator upon release and won our business pitch competition in New York. And his business is ConBody, and it is a prison-style fitness boot camp. And he has a studio in Lower Manhattan. All of the uh, personal trainers have come out of incarceration. He has. He now has a studio in uh, in Saks Fifth Avenue. He's looking at franchise opportunities um it's like a simulated prison cell the 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 studio where you work out and um this thing's really caught on and that was very unique um we have another guy uh who won our one of our west coast pitch competitions and he worked in the kitchen when he was in prison and the ingredients that were fresh he would use to make protein bars a lot of the food in prison is outdated and um just you know not not things that you would you know, want, want to have to eat. So when he got out, his uh, business concept was to make these protein bars. And so he won the pitch competition and launched a company called Prison Bars. And so he has national distribution. They're criminally delicious. It says right <laughs> on the label. And he's uh, he's got national distribution with these protein bars. And he's he's doing very well. The creativity is endless that we find. And the niche market opportunities, you um, are pretty exciting when you when you hear men and women talk about their ideas.
0: So what about then, you mentioned Nebraska has 150 volunteers taking part in the program uh, so far. What are the kinds of concerns or surprises that you are hearing from the volunteers?
1: We try to sit down with each volunteer before they come in to make sure that they're prepared. People have a lot of questions about safety, I'm not surprised to hear this, but I think almost every single one has said, at no point did I ever not feel safe. I think um, there is uh, some initial nervous tension when they come in. Just really a lot of it is kind of the unknown, the fear of the unknown. We're grateful for their open-mindedness to come in. The reality is, Our EITs are a hundred times more nervous before an event than they are. They're the ones presenting and uh, looking for, for critiquing. They haven't had a lot of experience just networking and having opportunities to talk to people from the outside. And so we always tell volunteers, no matter how nervous you are, our EITs are twice as nervous. And so we we do some very quick trust-building exercises to just get people comfortable with the things we're going to do throughout the day. Um, I think the perspectives going in and coming out are are very different. I appreciate the open-mindedness, but volunteers come out saying, I would hire a handful of those EITs. Some of those business ideas are as sound as Ones I've heard in pitches from students or from people who are currently trying to incorporate their companies, they're just blown away by the talent and potential. And they, t- they usually leave feeling, I think, more filled. Their bucket is filled more than they're giving. And, and once you go in once and you get to meet uh, some of the EITs, there's some m- mutual accountability. You know, well, I see you next time. You know, I I better see you graduate. I'll be at your graduation, and so you know the volunteers and the EITs tend to hold each other accountable, which which is great.
0: Do volunteers talk to all about ways in which they themselves are changed, how how they themselves have developed or changed as a person?
1: Absolutely. I don't think people think a lot about prison. I don't think they think a lot about people who are incarcerated, unless it affects them personally. And um, I think it's affected all of us in some way. I think we all know, have a loved one that's been incarcerated, or crime has affected our lives in some some unique way. Um, but I think the ability to have some self awareness about privilege is very eye opening for folks when you see the trauma and challenges and pain um, that that really a child has to deal with and typically that child then creates a felony at 16 17 18 19 before they're an adult we have all kinds of adults in our prisons that did these really awful things when they were you know pre-adult when they were when they were 16 17 18 19 now they're 20 30 40 they've been in for 10 to 30 years, they're different people. They're adults. Their brains are fully developed as adults. They have perspectives uh, that we all do that they did not have access to um, in those earlier years. And so I think the the length of time people are incarcerated is eye-opening um, to our volunteers. They see how long, you know, somebody who did something at 16 and has been in for 40 years that isn't a threat anymore to anyone that they that they have no way to get out. And I think that's hard for volunteers to, to swallow.
0: Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is Jeremy Bowman, the Executive Director of Defy Ventures Nebraska. What then are some of the challenges that you face, given that it would seem that it's a no-brainer to have this kind of um, opportunity in in every correctional facility? So what are the challenges from those facilities, perhaps from you know, some of the entities that, that control the correctional uh, institutions in various states and uh, potentially from you know members of the public and external businesses.
1: So by and large, we've been very fortunate here to have a really progressive director of corrections who wants to see more programming, who comes from Washington state where they do have more types of programming available. We have really uh, good relations at the state level to be able to do this work. Running a, a program for six months in a maximum security prison is fraught with difficulties and challenges. Um, We have uh, behavioral issues of our participants where the facilities have a one-strike rule, and so we have melt in our classes. We typically graduate about 50% of those that start. And so that can be heartbreaking if you have people tracking well and um, they get into a fight or uh, they're caught with contraband, and they can reapply to a future class, but they are immediately removed from the class you have facilities that are understaffed who are then allowing us to do this program where we are bringing volunteers in, we're bringing 40 or 50 volunteers in that, that can put a strain on a facility. And so that, that creates some challenges at times. And there's not um, a lot of rhyme or reason to how a facility is tracking where if it's locked down for whatever reason for a week or two, um, you know, we have events that just can't happen. Our classes can't meet. Um, we try to track our program a certain way to graduate at a certain time, and there's a lot of variables that's very much out of our control, um, given the nature of what's happening inside a maximum security prison. We have very uh, supportive corrections officers, um, and then, understandably, we have some who have. Experience violence against themselves or their colleagues that don't want to see these types of opportunities for the men and women who are incarcerated, and so that can be a challenge too. If if there's staff who aren't nec- aren't really positive about change for the population, and um, why are you coming in and and trying to do this? So those are some of the challenges. I also think because so many people outside have experienced. Um, some crime to themselves or loved ones I can appreciate and understand how how raw those feelings are and when we talk to potential volunteers and they begin asking around you know what do you do for the victims and there's still some deep wounds that they're dealing with I know that that is going to be a challenge and Again, we don't condone any of the things our participants have done. We hate the things they've done. But we also know that we don't want them to do those things again. And typically when you, you know, the the research says when you talk to victims, the one thing they wish they could have um, change or what they hope to come out of the situation is that um, the, per- the perpetrator doesn't do it again, that the person doesn't do it again. And so that's kind of where we fit in is um that you know life transformation and reprogramming so that these things do not happen again it's it's uh not the sexiest uh thing to attach yourself to when you're um when you have all kinds of opportunities to get involved in philanthropy or to get involved with um programs that support children and nature and you know but i do think um i haven't seen a kid's program yet that is as effective as having a working parent at home i do think being in the trenches and doing what we're doing is is important
0: so let's begin to unearth a little bit then about why you are motivated to be doing what you're doing. And I think maybe a good place to start is way back with your childhood. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing.
1: Yeah, I grew up in New York City. My dad's a a Lutheran pastor and my mom was a social worker. So there was a lot of um, social justice opportunities to get involved at a young age uh, and just that's kind of the environment I grew up in where there was a lot of grace and empathy and so um, my dad would take me to Rikers Island to make visits on people who were incarcerated there um, before we would go to a Mets game or a Yankee game and so I, I started going to prison when I was six or seven years old and that really destigmatized that experience for me at a young age. I, I got to meet people. I didn't, you know, have any window into why they were there. I saw people that were kind to me that would ask me about my own T-ball team or, you know, we would talk how good the Yankees were, how bad the Mets were. Um, my dad would pray with them. They would often cry. And, um, I saw the humanity that we have, uh, in prisons. And I, um, I, after college, before you move on yep. to the college years, yeah,
0: um, tell me what it was like being in Queens in the seventies. Was it the seventies?
1: Yeah, it was in the seventies. Yeah, so tell me about life in Queens in, sure. in the seventies when you're sure. Growing. So I grew up in Jackson Heights, and it was it was a pretty rough um, community, and it was a tremendously diverse community. Um, Jackson Heights is one of the most diverse. You know, towns. I would say in the country, um, we had a large uh, Puerto Rican, Korean, uh, Colombian population, African American. Um, I was actually a minority in school. <laughs> living in Omaha now, that uh, you know is different, but it was a it was a rough place. Um, drugs were pretty pervasive. Crime was pretty you know pretty strong. We I remember there being. Uh, Crimes and, you know, muggings and things happening in the alley where we played. And um, so it was, it was, you know, it was kind of rough um, in the 70s and 80s growing up in Queens.
0: And so you hit your teens still in Queens at this point?
1: Moved to northern New Jersey. My dad got a, a call to be a pastor of a church about five miles south of the George Washington Bridge. Um, went to high school in Northern New Jersey, went to college in central Pennsylvania and then came back and lived in Manhattan and Brooklyn and kind of all around New York and, uh, started this small business when companies were finally getting dedicated internet connectivity and saying, you know, we need this high speed data to do business. So this would have been then, so you, you you leave college
0: and you come back to New York city Mm -hmm. and you've got some entrepreneurial flair or drive Mm
1: -hmm. about you and this is the internet age you're approaching maybe 23 24 years old and um there were a lot of uh young people in new york at that time who were starting all kinds of different internet businesses And I'd worked in a company that um, was doing dedicated internet connectivity. That was a larger company. And there was another gentleman uh, who I worked with, and he and I went um, and spun off and started our own company. And that was uh, New York Telecom? Correct, New York Telecom. So tell me a
0: little bit more then just about this entrepreneurial spirit and how you transitioned from being a, a, a business owner uh, and at the height of you know this this time of the internet and the dot com boom and how things changed for you
1: yeah so we had uh it was the two of us working in lower manhattan and after 3 years we had 12 employees we were doing about a million and a half in sales doing web hosting and dedicated internet connectivity we really were trying to position ourselves for a acquisition, um, like a lot of other smaller internet service providers. And that was, I really enjoyed the sales and the entrepreneurial aspect of the business. And my partner was more the engineer and, um, I, I love entrepreneurship. I love the idea that you can start your own company in this country and um, be successful. And so my priorities were different than they are now. As a as a uh, young man in New York, um, I wanted to make money, and I didn't think a lot about my future. Be, you know, beyond the company I was building, and um, our infrastructure was in the five World Trade Center building, which which didn't come. It, it, it came down after September 11th, so but that was a building that was severely damaged on that day. Um, our offices were two blocks south, and so that was a um, kind of life changing experience for me. The that day itself, and then the days and weeks following September 11th, and I vocationally really started to wrestle with what am I doing? What's life about? Um, I ended up going to work for a nonprofit to raise money around the disaster and got into development work. And I think um, my own needs became smaller as the, you know, the needs of the community and opportunities to serve became larger. And so, ever since then, I've I've worked for predominantly faith-based uh, nonprofit institutions and higher education institutions, um, trying to help people learn, um, help people with basic needs, um, working with vulnerable populations. Um, so, I would say September 11th really changed my life and just my focus and where I'm going. Um, it was just an incredibly impactful experience for me that. Is, is why I am doing what I'm doing today.
0: To so the degree that you feel comfortable talking about it, um, c- could you, given that it seems that that experience was foundational in almost like an existential crisis, uh, would you talk a little bit about the actual experience of the day and and then some of the psychological and emotional uh, reactions you had that have led you to this much more holistic and altruistic. Uh, endeavor.
1: Yeah, so I don't talk a lot about the day itself or the events. I am in private about that. I also want to honor the people that passed away that day, the families of the people that passed away. I didn't lose a family member. Um, I knew people that were in the towers, um, friends and work coworkers, and um, just like All all the rest of New York, I grieved the loss of people I knew. Um, I think I wrestled from a faith standpoint quite a bit growing up um, in a pastor's house. You um, have a certain belief system that was rocked, I would say, um, around that event. And I became very depressed after it. I had uh, just a lot of... um, personal soul searching and pain and, um, anger and, um, you know, just led to some bad decisions and eventually, um, my wife saved my life. The woman I'm married to today, I met her and, uh, she, she really was a big part of helping me see a future again. And I, my faith became very important to me at that time and has really driven all the decisions i've made since and so um my faith is a centerpiece for my family my life the decisions i make um but that was a uh, a very challenging experience um that uh affects me every day and i haven't always dealt with it in the most healthy ways. I think sometimes I'm in Nebraska because I needed to get away from New York. I um, had a lot of pain there. Um, and, you know, haven't as I'm not even really talking about it, you can tell I don't always deal with it in the healthiest ways. I've, you know, shoved it down and um, um, have dealt with it to the extent that I think I can. But I still can't watch anything on anniversaries about it. Um, I, I I keep kind of a, a distance from it and it uh, is still very close to the surface and um, doesn't take much to, to put me right back there in that place. Have you found
0: that notwithstanding the experience of that day and, and the consequences of that, that you can see how it has and continues maybe to inform this passion and motivation you have to be outwardly focused to the, the benefit and betterment of, of humanity around you.
1: It completely fuels my drive every day. Um, You know, life is a gift. Um, You start to really um, in a situation like that, really understand more your mortality, uh, just how kind of small we are and um, how, how are we going to spend this time? And, um, to me, it feels worthwhile and important to spend that time um, helping others have a better life, helping people be better parents or gain education, um, find ways out of poverty, find ways to empower communities. That to me feels like it's worthwhile, and I want to come about work that's um True to who I am and where there can be significant um impact on individuals but also on communities and society as a whole. We were touching on this just before we came into the
0: studio, and I, I just want to ask, you are a white man, and I wonder if you might speak a little bit to the idea of credibility and the challenges and the opportunities that maybe this brings given that as much as we'd like to pretend that race isn't a factor here, the simple truth is that the data tells us that race is a factor in um, law enforcement, the judicial system, correctional facilities, but even much broader than that, um, social circumstances, housing, poverty, education levels. Um, it's relevant. So I just wonder how, how maybe that impacts your credibility.
1: I think it does. And I think all I can do, Stuart is, um, listen and be a partner particularly to communities that we serve and to over time um, build trust and credibility the proof will be in the pudding it'll be in the work that that i'm able to do um how thoughtful we are about um diversity on our board on our staff how we partner with North Omaha, South Omaha, different communities, where we have EITs who are returning to the communities that they grew up. So, you know, I want to be a good partner. Um, I am who I am, (laughs) you know. Um, I, you know, really feel like... um, there's enough work you know the harvest is great but the workers are few so if people want to roll up their sleeves and help tackle some of these issues and we can be at the table and if what we're doing contributes to a solution um i want to be all about that and i don't care who it is that we do that with um we wanna we wanna roll up our sleeves with other people that um, have tangible solutions, um, have access, have kind of the same heart around this that we do. Um, but yeah, I, I understand you know who I am and um, try to have enough self awareness um, related to the communities that we're predominantly serving.
0: We've talked about some painful subjects. We've talked about. The drive, though, the motivation, the passion that you have for the work you do and some of the reasons behind that, but how do you practice self-care and how do you cultivate bright, light, frivolous moments in your life?
1: I love my family. i got a great partner. Uh, Sarah is a wonderful partner. Um, love my kids. I have two kids that give us a lot of joy and um just people to share this journey with my faith being a part of my faith community. um, Spending that time with God, being prayerful is very important to me and keeps me centered and focused on um, my life when I'm called to good friends. And this work gives me joy every single day um, to see Our EITs growing and to see how grateful they are to have people come in and love them, show them empathy, teach them, um, seeing how volunteers' lives are changed. Um, I love what I'm doing, and that fills my bucket in a huge way um, because I think what we're doing is working, and I think it's a movement in a sense that we're changing hearts and minds of the public at large. We're creating more pathways to employment and we're um, we're showing up. We're giving hope to people um, in a dark place um, who have failed in big public ways and telling them that they're loved and that they are valued and that they have gifts that they can contribute And I think the biggest human emotion that brings people the most joy is the opportunity to give back and to serve. And I see that where um, the confidence of our EITs that comes from their opportunities to serve, the types of things they want to do to give back, um, I feel those things every day. Um, So that, that really brings me joy.
0: To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's Radio Show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation with Jeremy Bowman. Jeremy, thank you so much
1: for being on the show. Thank you, Stuart. Great to be with you.
0: That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.